On April 8, 1990, ABC premiered a TV show called Twin Peaks. It was a murder mystery, who killed Laura Palmer. Now, the show was revolutionary for its time. It was surreal, it was campy, it was bizarre. It had complex storylines, it was experimental. There was nothing like it on television. And the show started as a smashing success. 36 million Americans tuned in to watch that first episode. The show created an obsessive following. Fans got together and did watch parties. They got together and talked, like, wait, what about this clue? What about this clue? And they're debating and trying to figure things out. It was a cultural phenomenon. And then in the middle of the second season, they revealed who killed Laura Palmer. And people were like, really? That's it? What is this? That's a lame ending. And people stopped watching in droves. The, the, the show was canceled after the second season. Twin Peaks, good beginning, lousy ending. 20 years later, <laughs> ABC came out with Lost. You remember the show, obviously. <laughs> Lots of people became obsessed about this show, arguing about it endlessly. And then the final episode came, and you find out that the entire last season was a complete waste of time. And people were like, really? That's it? Ah! Today, I know people who are still upset about this. Okay, I know people. Okay. Uh, more recently, Game of Thrones, right? People love the show, hate the ending. Right? People hated the ending. The ending doesn't fit the character development. The, the ending doesn't, doesn't, doesn't resolve the issues raised in the series. On and on and on. So here's the reality. A good ending is hard to find. Right? As a writer, it's easy to start a story, right? to craft compelling characters, interesting conflicts and subplots, tension, excitement. But when it comes to an ending, one that is surprising, so, you know, readers and and what audience don't see it coming a mile away, at the same time satisfying, so it resolves all the issues that you've raised up and built in. That is really hard, really hard to do. Now here at Blackout Church, we often talk about the Bible as a story. Now that is a complicated story. That is an epic story. That is a story that spans generations with tons of subplots, tons of characters, tons of issues that are raised up. Today, we're going to talk about the ending of this story of the Bible. But before I really get going, let me introduce myself. My name is Charles. I'm one of the pastors on the teaching team. I want to ask everybody in the room right now to join me in welcoming those who are watching in, at, at, at Gospel Fusion, in Traditions, Upper House, Fitchburg. All right. To the Chinese speakers, and to everyone, welcome to Blackhawk Church. We're so very glad you're here. Now, today we're in a sermon series called Rooted, where we're walking through the Statement of Faith of EFCA. Now, EFCA stands for Evangelical Free Church of America, and that is the denomination that our church belongs to. And the Statement of Faith is a summary of the theological commitments that we have made as a church. Now, it is impossible for us to go through in detail every aspect of every part of the Statement of Faith in a 35-minute sermon series. So what we as the teaching team decided to do is to focus on how each article of the statement connects with the gospel. So you saw this slide in the first week of the series. Pastor Matt showed this to you. And he talked about how God is the author of the gospel. That's article one. 
Um, then we talk about how the Bible, Article 2, reveals the gospel. Uh, Pastor Ben, um, he came up here and did the whole, you know, Lion King. Remember he's saying that? He talked about the human condition necessitates the gospel. Last week, Pastor Matt, Jesus as Lord, is the promised one who brings the gospel. And today we're looking at Jesus as Savior, his sacrificial work, that is, his death on the cross and his resurrection as the core of the gospel. Now, pardon me. Let me just get real. Those of you who've been around churches for a while, you've heard one or 10 or 100 sermons on the cross. Am I right? So I know some of you are like mentally getting ready to check out already. I'm going to ask you to not do that because today I'm going to try to explain the cross in a way likely you have never heard before. I'm going to try to explain the cross within the context of the entire story of the Bible. Now, I know that's impossible to do in 35 minutes in any kind of a comprehensive way. So if you want to dive deeper, I'd like to introduce uh, three books to you. Uh, Recovering the Scandal of the Cross by Joel Green and Mark Baker, uh, The Atonement by Leon Morris, and The Crucifixion by Fleming Rutledge. Uh, These books go deep. They answer questions that I will not have time to get into. Today, I'm going to be flying like 30,000 feet, and and even then, it's going to feel a bit more like a lecture, but I'm going to ask you to stay with me because it's going to give you the big picture look. It's going to help change how you understand the cross and how you understand the gospel. You guys ready? All right. For those of you who didn't say anything, you know, it doesn't matter. We're doing it anyway. (laughs) Okay. Here it goes. The cross is the center of the gospel. Why do I say that? Because Paul says it. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as the first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. This passage is about the gospel. And what is the first importance about the gospel? Jesus died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day. That story right there. Right, that story right there, Jesus going to Jerusalem, he, he, he gets hung on a cross, he gets buried, and he rises from the dead. That story is central to the gospel. And if you've been around churches, you know that. But today, I want to draw our attention to a phrase that gets relatively neglected in this passage. And that phrase is this, according to the scriptures... Now, this is an important phrase. How do I know that? Because Paul says it twice. In Jewish writing, repetition is emphasis. This is an important phrase. Now, now when Paul says, according to scriptures, scriptures, he's not talking about the Bible that we have today. Okay? No, no, no. The, the, the New Testament hasn't been written yet. So when Paul, when Paul talks about scriptures, he's talking about the Hebrew Bible, or what we call the Old Testament. So, it isn't just Jesus' death and resurrection understood any way you want, right? 
It's Jesus' death and resurrection understood in a very particular way. Paul says we need to see Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection through the lens of the Old Testament. That's of first importance. That's the center of the gospel. The cross and the resurrection according to the Old Testament. Now, what does that mean? Well, if you've been around here, you know that the Old Testament is at its core a story. And here are the main elements of that story. God creates a wonderful world. The Bible portrays God as this artistic creator, and he is the ruler of this wondrous universe. And then God creates humans to rule the earth on his behalf. Now, remember Pastor, Pastor Ben's sermon about, about the Lion King, right? I'm not going to sing, okay? <laughs> and he talks about how we're, we are destined to be kings and queens, to rule this world on God's behalf. And then we're called to be in communion with God, to live with God, to know God, and to love God. To be with God, that's our home. That's where we're meant to be. But the humans rebel against God. We'd rather be God ourselves. And as a result, we are exiled. We're kicked out of our home. Consequently, we are alienated from God, we're alienated from each other, and we're alienated from creation itself. We become broken people living in a broken world. All of that is in the first 11 chapters of the Old Testament, Genesis chapters 1 through 11. Now, in response to this problem, in response to what's happening, God creates a people. He calls a people which gradually formed the ancient kingdom of Israel. And the idea is this, that this kingdom would live in such a way that they would live out God's character, God's values. So other nations, other peoples would go, oh, that's really impressive. You have, a, you have an incredible society there. Let's come to you and learn about God. Right? That's the plan. Right? They become his partner to fix what's wrong with the world. So in the history of Israel, there are these great stories, stories about people like Abraham, like Moses, like David, like Elijah, fantastic stories, but... The story as a whole ends in failure, ends in tragedy. God's people, instead of living in a way that draw people to God, they started living just like everybody else, and eventually they started living worse than everybody else. <sighs> they were repelling people from God, and so God sends them into exile. After a while, some of the people return to their homeland, and they sit there and they wait. And that is the end of the Old Testament story. How do you like the story? Okay, I don't want to sound sacrilegious, but if this is how the story ends, the ending stinks. That's a really bad story. Why? Because there's all these issues that have been raised that are unresolved, right? Issue number one, okay? What about justice? I mean, look at the world we live in. We're left with this world that is broken. There's injustice, there's violence, there's slavery, there's sex trafficking, there's wars, there's genocide. And we're like, some of us are going, God, you got to do something. Aren't you a God of justice? Don't you care about suffering? Are you going to punish evil or not? And some of us are going, whoa, 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 slow down the punishing evil bit. Because we recognize that 
sin and brokenness and evil isn't just people out there. It starts right here. Is God going to punish me for my brokenness, my evil, my sins? How is God's justice going to come into the story in a way that makes sense? What about alienation from God? We're not home. We're in exile, folks. We're far from home. God's away from us. We're not where we're supposed to be. How do we go back now that all the things have happened? How do we get back to a place where we're together in communion with God? Or is exile, being out of place, out of sorts, out of death, the fate for all of us? Now, this is an interesting one. How will we escape a demonic world of sin and death? This is a subplot in the Bible, okay? This is a subplot. It turns out, within the subplot, there are other spiritual beings in the divine realm, okay? If you're interested in all of this, we did a whole sermon series called The Invisible Realm. Go look it up on our website. That goes into this whole other, all these other spiritual beings living in the invisible realm. But the gist of it is this. There are other spiritual beings who were also in rebellion against God. And they have taken over our world. So human beings, as we declare independence from God, we somehow come under the oppression and the rule of these other spiritual powers and spiritual beings who are opposed to God. Seeking freedom, we found slavery instead. How will we escape? How will we be delivered from this demonic world of sin and death? Number four. If you look at Genesis chapter 3 through 11, okay, that's the big story of humanity. It starts with our rebellion against the word of God. It goes in immediately into murder, and then it goes into excessive vengeance, and then there is the corruption of human imagination. And finally, Genesis 11 culminates in humanity being broken into ethnic groups, different language groups. And this breaking of humanity signals the beginning of ethnic hostility, of warfare, of genocide, of mutual oppression. Our world is broken, people. Look at a world map and you see it. Or watch the Olympics. How can we live together? How can we come back? And finally, the people of Israel, the people of God, they're sitting there waiting. They need to be rejuvenated. They need to be given a new mission. They need to be transformed. What's going to happen to them? What happens to God's tool to fixing this world? These are all the major unresolved issues from the Old Testament. Okay. And so... The Old Testament is either a really bad story with a really bad ending, or it's an unfinished story. Sometime in the middle to the late first century, a group of people come along, they're New Testament writers, and they say, oh, 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 oh. the Old Testament is definitely an unfinished story. Because see, you see, there's this guy named Jesus. He is actually the God of the Old Testament. He is the creator God of the universe, and he has come to become human being in the flesh. And his story is the proper continuation of the Old Testament story. His, the story of him and his followers, they are the climactic ending 
of this story. And at the center of that climax is Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection. The cross and the resurrection is the climax of the entire biblical narrative. And this is a surprising ending because no one saw it coming, and it is a satisfying ending because it resolves all these issues from the Old Testament. And that's why Paul says, what's the first importance of the gospel is Jesus' death and resurrection according to the Old Testament. Okay, great. Obvious next question. How does the cross solve all this? How does that actually happen? Well, to understand the New, Te- New Testament people's, the writer's mindset, we, we have to begin with this, okay? When Jesus died on the cross, that was an act of judicial execution. That's from a human perspective, okay? From the human perspective, Jesus had a trial. He had a, a there was a verdict, and he was ordered to be, to, to be executed by the Roman imperial officials. Okay? That's the human perspective. But, but God sees it differently. God does not see the death of Jesus as a judicial execution. God sees it as something else. Okay? So how does God see the cross of Jesus? Well, according to the New Testament writers, God sees the cross of Jesus as an act of ritual animal sacrifice. Yeah. We're going to talk about animal sacrifice today. I'm, for the rest of my talk, I'm going to be talking about animal sacrifices. Yeah, it's going to get bizarre. I, I know, I know. It's a little weird, okay? Sorry. But today we're getting a really heavy dose of the Bible is not written to us, but for us. You see, New Testament written in the first century to first century people in the Mediterranean area, and they live in a culture where people get animal sacrifices. They see, they see animal sacrifices all the time. Right? They, they know it. And these are also people who, who read the Old Testament a lot because they don't have the New Testament. The Old Testament is their only Bible. So in the Old Testament talks about animal sacrifices a lot. So the New Testament is written to people who culturally understand animal sacrifices, and they have understanding of how animal sacrifices work in the Old Testament. And so when, when the New Testament writers talk about Jesus' death on the cross as an animal sacrifice, they go, yeah, this is so clear. Of course the cross is the climax of the entire biblical narrative. Yes, we love it. Fast forward 2,000 years. And we live in a culture that has no understanding of animal sacrifices. I'm guessing most of us here have never seen an animal sacrifice in person. And uh, the only place we've seen it, for some of us, is we watch you know, those kind of movies, you know, kind of horror movies or something kind of weird and bizarre, and the whole animal sacrifice thing is set up as something kind of, kind of exotic, and it's like, ooh, kind of scary. We have no cultural intuitions about animal sacrifices. And then the reality is that Christ followers today, we don't know the Old Testament as well as we know the New Testament. Well, I mean, look, the reality is this, okay? The book that talks about animal sacrifices the most is the book of Leviticus. Anyone has Leviticus as their favorite book of the Bible? Raise your hand. Anyone? Okay, yeah, my point exactly. We are people who don't have any cultural intu- intuitions about animal sacrifices, and we don't know what the Old Testament has to say about animal sacrifices. So we 
don't have intuitions about animal sacrifices, and therefore we don't have intuitions about the cross. Now, in a 35-minute talk, I cannot fill in that cultural gap or the Old Testament knowledge gap. But what I can do is try to give you a little bit of basic understanding of animal sacrifices, maybe to help you develop some intuitions. And to do that, we start with this basic understanding. Ritual animal sacrifices in the Old Testament creates a connection between you and the animal that you sacrifice. I don't mean that you become best friends, not that kind of connection, okay? What I mean is this. Here's an example. Let's say you, you make a vow in the Old Testament. Let's say you make a vow to God. You say, God, I swear I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. And to emphasize the seriousness of this vow, you sacrifice an animal. Well, that act now has connected you to the animal you sacrificed, which means if you don't fulfill your vows, God can kill you like that animal. Do you see that? How that animal sacrifice connects you to the animal that you sacrifice. Here's another example with a sin sacrifice. Let's say during Old Testament times, I've committed a sin that's pretty serious, and I know according to God's justice, I deserve death. So what do I do? I bring, the animal to, I bring an animal to the temple, and I kill the animal. And with that act, there's a connection made between me and the animal. That animal is me, and I am the animal. The animal's dead. So am I. This is where God's grace comes in. You see, God graciously chooses to see the death of the animal as my death so that I don't have to die. The animal dies in my place, and now I live a new life. That's what's going on. That's the logic of ritual animal sacrifices in the Old Testament. And this logic is captured by two fundamental ideas. Number one, substitution. The animal is a substitute for me. The animal's dead, I am not. The animal takes my place. Second idea, representation. The animal represents me. The animal is dead, and so am I. Our lives are joined together. We're united in some way. Substitution, representation. When you grasp those two ideas, you will have some intuitions about how ritual animal sacrifices work in the Old Testament, and they are the intuitions that you need to understand the cross. This is the Article 5 of the EFCA Statement of Faith. We believe that Jesus Christ, as our representative and substitute, shed his blood on the cross as the perfect, all-sufficient sacrifice for our sins. His atoning death and victorious resurrection constitute the only ground for salvation. You see that. By the way, you didn't know I've been teaching Article 5 the whole time. <laughs> okay. By the way, I just want to say, I love this statement of faith. The ESC Statement of Faith is awesome. And this article especially, just, I, mean, I know that's a real theology nerd thing to say, uh, but this article really captures the breadth of what the Bible teaches about the cross. Okay. Representation and substitution. Okay. You, absolutely, you absolutely need them both. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 
For Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. One died for all. That's substitution. Right? You see that, right? And all died. That's representation. That's representation right there. Substitution, representation. In one verse. And guess what? Here's the kicker. They are logically connected. One died for all, therefore all died. Substitution, therefore representation. You cannot have one without the other. You cannot separate them. Why? The logic of ritual animal sacrifices. People who don't understand animal sacrifices, they'll say things like, oh yeah, Jesus can die for your sin, but you're not in any way connected to Jesus. That cannot happen. That does not happen. If Jesus died for your sins, you are connected to Jesus. And if Jesus didn't die for your sins, you're not connected to him. Which is why he died for all, for that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. We are connected and joined with Jesus because of what he did on the cross. All right. How does the cross, as substitution and representation, resolve all the issues that, we, that was left outstanding in the Old Testament? Let's talk about justice. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. What's God going to do? How is God going to fix the problem of injustice in our world? Well, God's justice says that human rebellion must be punished. God's grace nails that punishment to the cross. You get the logic of this. This is, animal, this is sin sacrifice right here. Jesus, the animal bears the sin. Jesus bears the sin. His death on the cross means the punishment for us is taken away and we're no longer under judgment. Our sins are forgiven. This is substitution. This is the aspect of the cross that we are most familiar with. Number two. What about alienation from God? Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. You see, God wants to do more than just forgive our sins. He wants to bring us back together, bring us to the same, to, 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 to being a place of intimacy. How is he going to do that when, when there's so much brokenness and so much hurt already happened? He does it on the cross. He does it on the cross by his physical body through death. Because of the cross, we are holy without blemish and free from accusation. And you're like, what? Wait, 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 wait. I thought only God, only Jesus is holy without blemish and free from accusation. That is right. But because we join Jesus' death on the cross, we too are seen as holy, without blemish, and free from accusation. We are reconciled with God. 
We are back to where we're supposed to be. We are back home. We're out of exile. This is representation. Number three. How will we escape a demonic world of sin and death? Jesus, Paul writes, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he's talking about the spiritual powers and authorities that rule this earth, who are in opposition to God. Jesus made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Jesus disarms the spiritual powers by the cross. How does that even happen? What does that even mean? Well, Jesus actually talks about this. And, and, I, and he uses a really inappropriate metaphor, so I kind of hesitate to, to put that on the screen. But I just, okay, just want to be mentally prepared for this, okay? So you're going to be thrown off by this, but just be prepared. So Jesus is actually talking about the satanic world in, in Mark chapter 3. And he's talking about the demons. And he says, in fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. And then he can plunder the strong man's house. Okay. Now, in this metaphor, the strong man is Satan. The strong man is the demonic spiritual being that run this world. And, of course, the house is this world. And so you see this is a home invasion metaphor. Jesus is coming to rob Satan's house. And he says, the way you've got to do it is you've got to tie him up first. And then you can do it properly. Okay, I know Jesus likes to be provocative. Okay. But I think, I think you get what he's getting at, right? Jesus is coming to the world, and he's going to rob Satan blind. And he's going to take Satan's possessions. And what are Satan's possessions? Us. You and me. Everyone who follows Jesus is somebody that Jesus has robbed from Satan. Okay? We used to belong to the world. Now we belong to God. And how does that happen? Representation. We, when Jesus dies on the cross, we died with him to this demonic world. And when Jesus resurrected, we resurrected with him into the glorious new kingdom of God in the here and now. And we look forward to our future resurrection because the power of death is broken by Jesus. How can a world divided, be divided by ethnic hostility come together to live in peace? Paul writes in Ephesians. For Jesus himself is our peace, who has made the two groups Okay, here he's talking about the Jews and then the Gentiles or the ethne, the ethnic groups, Jews and all the other ethnic groups, has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility between these groups. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. What is God's solution to ethnic hostility in our world? One new humanity in the body of Jesus Christ. According to the logic of animal sacrifices, when we join with Jesus on the cross, we become part of Jesus. Well, guess what? Somebody else who's of a different ethnic group, they are part of Jesus as well. And now we're all in Jesus. We're in one body. So what's going on? Oh my goodness, everybody's in one body and the power of the Holy Spirit in the, in the body of Jesus is helping us to learn to love each other precisely because we're different. 
And in so doing, God creates this one body, one new humanity, where ethnic hostility is put to death. Representation. Finally, what about the people of God? This passage, 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5, we've already seen the earlier verses where it talked about one died for all, therefore all died. This is just a continuation. And this passage contains the themes that we've been talking about the whole sermon long. Okay, just read it and you'll hear all the words pop up. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, representation, new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us, reconciliation, to himself through Christ. And guess what? Gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We are reconciled to God and now we have a job to reconcile others to God. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. How is he doing that? By not counting people's sins against them. The forgiveness of sins. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. So what does that mean for us? This new people of God, this church. Well, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. In this kingdom, we are his representatives. As though God were making his appeal through us. And so we implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We're the new people of God, the church, the kingdom of God. We have joined with Jesus on, on, on the cross and joined with him in his resurrection and we are now given a new status to be God's ambassadors to reconcile the world to him. The cross, the cross covers everything. Right? The cross does all of this. And this is why Paul says the death and resurrection of Jesus, according to the Old Testament, is of first importance. It is center of the gospel. The cross for, achieves our forgiveness of sins. It reconciles us to God. It, it delivers, delivers us from this world of sin and death. It creates this, this body, this multi-ethnic, multicultural body where ethnic hostility is being put to death. And it creates a new people, transformed, empowered, and given the mission of reconciliation. That's the cross, people. It's an awesome ending. Hallelujah. Awesome ending. Now, I know what some of you may be thinking right now. You're thinking, okay, great, Charles. The cross is a great ending and resolves all the issues left outstanding from the Old Testament. Fantastic. But what about the issues in my life? Does the cross resolve the issues in my life? I'm, a, I, 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 I'm, I'm suffering addiction. I... I I have mental health issues. I don't have friends. I'm alone and isolated. I'm being bullied in school. I don't do well in my classes. I'm stuck in a dead-end job. My marriage is falling apart. My child has learning disability. My parents are getting old and we're trying to figure out how to take care of them. I have a mountain of debt and I'm facing bankruptcy. My spouse of 40 years just died 
and I'm trying to figure out how to live on my own. What does the cross do for me? Now, I wish I could tell you that the cross solves all our problems. But the truth is, the cross does not address the pressing issues of our lives, except in one particular way, and that is this. The cross reveals the heart of God. The cross tells us who God is. And the God who would go through all of this for us, for our sake, is the God who loves us, who knows us, and cares about us. And I don't mean the kind of love that is distant, kind of love of humanity kind of love. No, I'm talking about God who knows everything about your life. And he is right there mourning with you when you're suffering your darkest and deepest pain. And he yearns, he yearns so much for wholeness in your life. The God who is responsible for the cross is the one who will walk with you through anything and everything. And I know that does not solve all your problems. But it's a good starting point. A relationship with a God who loves you is a starting point toward wholeness, toward transformation, toward becoming rooted in the cross. Let me pray for us. And all the sites and venues and whether you're watching at home, go ahead and close your eyes and and bow your head. Right now I want to talk to some of you who have been thinking about Jesus for a bit. You've been coming to church. You've been listening. You've been watching online. And you're wondering, this is the thing. This is something I need to do. Well, today you got to hear about the cross you got to hear a pretty thorough explanation of what the cross does. The cross means your sins are forgiven. It means you're reconciled with God. It means you're, you're, you're rescued from sin and death in this demo, of this demonic world. It means you're joined to a multi-ethnic, multicultural community of God where ethnic hostility is being put to death. And it means you're part of a people given a mission. So today I want to invite you to make a decision. Because you don't just become a Christ follower by accident. You have to make a decision. You have to choose. So I'm asking you to make that decision today. If you do, just in your heart, in your mind, repeat the prayer. Thinking, I'm going I'm to pray for you right now. Join me. Creator God of the universe. I confess that I'm a broken person and I live in this broken world. And I believe in the gospel. I believe in the good news of your son, Jesus Christ. And I believe that what he's done on the cross and what he did with his resurrection means I can join in, that my sins are forgiven and I'm reconciled with you. And I can be part of this new glorious people. God, that's what I want. And because I trust you, I know now I am part of your kingdom. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.